true confession, until this spring, I had never watched the movie Castaway. It's already 20 years old. Yeah, released in 2000. Remember those days? Well, if it's been your lifelong ambition to watch Castaway and you still haven't done it, it's still on your list, then go do it. And then come back to this episode. Because there's spoilers all the way through, but you don't want to miss this show. Welcome to Island Watch, a podcast about islands. Each week we visit a different island by watching movies and TV shows. I'm Dave Zarg. I'm Gemma Voss. All aboard, let's set sail into the Pacific for Tom Hanks' deserted island. This week, we watched Castaway. Dave, why don't you tell us about it? Castaway was released in December of 2000, and it had some pretty heavyweight power behind it. Of course, it starred Tom Hanks. He was on a real runaway streak at that point after a a batch of successful movies like Big, A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle. He won the Best Actor Oscar for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. He had been in Apollo 13, which led to another Oscar nomination, Toy Story 1 and 2, Saving Private Ryan, You've Got Mail, and The Green Mile. So basically he was in everything. Just about. And he'd also directed a movie at that point, That Thing You Do. The director was Robert Zemeckis, best known, of course, for the Back to the Future trilogy and Forrest Gump. He had also done Death Becomes Her and Contact. He also made a movie called What Lies Beneath during breaks in the filming of Castaway. And I want to just give special mention to his first feature way back in 1978, which was called I Want to Hold Your Hand, about a group of Beatles fans. Lovely little movie. Actually, when you said he was on a break, <laughs> it just reminded me, I, I read that the reason that they were on a break was because Tom Hanks, they filmed him... 50 pounds heavier for most of the scenes and then he then he had to lose 50 pounds so that it would be believable that he was cast away on an island exactly a lot of cinema verite in that sense and the screenplay was written by a man named william Broyles jr although he had actually worked out the concept a lot in collaboration with robert zemeckis and tom hanks william Broyles jr is interesting because he was a vietnam veteran turned journalist And in fact, he was the editor of Newsweek for a few years before turning to screenwriting. He co-created a show called China Beach, which is one of my very favorite TV shows, and wrote several early episodes of that and acted as a creative consultant throughout the run of that series. And he also wrote the screenplay for Apollo 13. So he had worked with, with Tom Hanks previously. And I also want to mention Helen Hunt, too, who had a small but important role in this movie. At that point, of course, she was best known for the TV show Mad About You, which ran for seven seasons from 1992 to 1999. She had also been in Twister, and she had won the Best Actress Oscar for As Good As It Gets in 97. He was in so many movies in the 90s that I think I I was actually getting a little bit tired of him. Not that he isn't a charming, nice fellow, I'm sure, but... I didn't actually see this movie when it first came out. And when I started talking to people about this podcast, I heard from 
a bunch of people that they, the way that they remember Castaway is that it's a one guy show and that he's the only person in it. So then when I started watching and there was all these scenes with Helen Hunt at the beginning, I was like, what? Because I, I kind of believed that myth. People had told me over the years that it was all about Tom Hanks and of course his buddy Wilson. Well, that's, that's interesting because he certainly does dominate the movie. I mean, Helen Hunt's role is pretty small and it is mostly Tom Hanks. Most of the screen time is, is just him. And I think that he does give a pretty convincing performance. That weight loss regimen that he underwent, which you just described, was just part of his preparation for the role. And I think that he he did play it very, fairly powerfully and that might lead one to think that it was a one-man show. Now, I've seen the movie a, f- a few times, so I, I did remember Helen Hunt's performance for sure because I thought that she did quite well with, with the, the material and the screen time that she was There wasn't given. a lot of meat for her to chew, sort of like uh, the same as his, him being on the island. Not a lot of meat. Another misconception I had about this movie is over the years, I... I'm sure that I heard that this was actually based on a true story. And when I looked it up, uh, this is probably no surprise to you. It's not. It's not based on a true story. I mean, of course, there's been castaways over the years. People found on deserted islands and, and such or found floating in the ocean. But it's based on no one in particular. I think that might be partly because of the power of Tom Hanks's performance and also the great lengths they went to to present his situation on the island in what seemed to me anyway a very realistic manner with a lot of attention to to detail and sound etc. Did Forrest Gump come out before this or after? It was several years before. Forrest Gump came out in 1994. Because I remember people thinking that Forrest Gump was a real character too. So maybe there's something about Tom Hanks' believability that just you see a movie and you think that's how it went down in real life. Well, and perhaps uh, Robert Zemeckis' direction too, because Forrest Gump was also directed by Robert Zemeckis. When William Broyles was writing the screenplay, he did spend a lot of time on, on a beach, several days in a beach just in the wilderness by himself. Mind you, it was on a beach in the coast of California, but nonetheless, without any other, without any, yeah, but without any other people around, because he wanted to get a bit of a feeling for what it's like to, to be isolated. So perhaps did some of that in combination with Zemeckis' direction and Tom Hanks' acting, maybe those are what really give a lot of credence to that idea that, or that feeling that it, maybe it is a true story. Right. But whether it's real or not, the film does portray a lot of challenges that the main character, Chuck Noland, played by Tom Hanks, goes through. And it's kind of set up at the beginning of the film when he rushes off from the southern states to Moscow and he's there to instill... FedEx understanding, policy understanding into the new employees at the Moscow branch that's just opening. And he has a little speech. It's probably one of the longest bits of dialogue in the entire movie. Let's take a listen. 
Oh, and just to let you know, your ears aren't playing tricks on you. You can also hear Chuck Nolan's Russian interpreter underneath Tom Hanks' voice. Time rules over us without mercy. Not caring if we're healthy or ill, hungry or drunk, Russian, American, beings from Mars. It's like a fire. It can either destroy us or it can keep us warm. That's why every FedEx office has a clock. Because we live or we die by the clock. We never turn our back on it. And we never ever allow ourselves the sin of losing track of time. Well, I think another challenge that came up with this movie was how do you make a movie with very little dialogue or music, in fact, to keep people engaged? And I think part of that is that it depicts a lot of the real challenges he, that he has on the island just trying to survive. His challenges start right from the time of, of escaping the crashed plane, having to swim to the surface and inflate his raft. It's storming. The plane hasn't complete, completely hey. submerged at that point. And Dave, actually, that was... Um, I mean, they really ramped the tension on that crash scene. I... I was pretty much climbing up the couch, uh, especially when the it shows the plane, like it shows the water coming to the plane. It doesn't really show the plane going to the water. It shows the, the water coming to the plane. And when he gets into the raft or he, sorry, he grabs the raft and he has a presence of mind actually to inflate it so that it will, he's tethered to it and it will rise to the surface. So I think at that moment, it's already demonstrating that this is a guy who can think pretty well under pressure. Yes, and certainly the odds seem to be against him at, at that point, because when he when he Definitely. comes to the surface, you know, part of the plane is still above the water. It, that poses a real danger to him. It's it's storming out, and it's on fire. Exactly. Yeah, and he almost gets sucked into the engine. I mean, this is some pretty classic nineteen nineties filmmaking isn't it it is a, it is a very well done uh disaster uh scene uh, for sure i i would certainly give it top marks for it for that part of the movie so he wakes up you know he's washed ashore on on a deserted island and you might think okay maybe this is a paradise island it, it's not going to be so bad being stranded on, on this island it's better than being at sea in in the middle of a raging storm the way he had been but of course he soon finds that he, it's difficult for him to cope because like he doesn't he doesn't have tools with him how does he how does he open a coconut how does he spear a crabfish to in order to survive to get food he faces so many challenges you're right he's he's it's almost like he's being reborn i mean that sounds really corny but i just thought of the image of him sleeping in the life raft him sleeping in the inflatable dinghy on the beach it's almost like he's He's basically in the fetal position in a crib, right? Like he's, he has to teach himself all new things because everything that worked before and, and, you know, thinking back to that clip about time, all the things that he believed in really aren't going to serve him on this island. You gotta love crab. The nick of time too. Couldn't take much more of those coconuts. Coconut milk's a natural laxative. Things Gilligan never told us. At a, at a certain point, a body of one of his colleagues washes up on the shore, and it's really devastating for him. He has to has to bury him, 
and it really reinforces how alone he is. Now, mind you, he's able to take his colleague's shoes so that he finally has some shoes to wear on his feet, but of course, they're too small, so he has to cut the ends off them. So everything that he does, he has to cope and adapt and improvise. This is certainly no tropical vacation on on this island. Definitely he's going through tough times, but around this time, I... I started to feel myself separating from just like the driving energy of the film in terms of suspense and then sadness when his his colleague um, washes up on shore. And, and I started to think like, why does he just keep collecting the packages as if they're driftwood and stashing them in a pile by the dinghy? Why doesn't he open those packages? Is this... I just didn't understand that decision on the part of the writer. Because I don't think you... I don't think if I were in that situation, I would think that I was going to be rescued anytime soon. And driving needs like food and water would be the top of my mind. Also, maybe some clothes like you mentioned you know he he's taking the shoes off a dead man so he he realizes he's in a fight for his life why doesn't he open up those packages it really started to kind of but like... he does he does open most of them remember it's just that one that he saves that he does that he doesn't open later right. on but he but he keeps them for an awfully long time i think if i found a package in the surf i would be tearing that thing open hoping for just anything that I could use, eat, drink, whatever. Well, I I wonder if maybe that was just because, yes, his hope that he would be rescued soon, and also just maybe the shock of, of being cast into this situation and being cast away from the safe, structured, time-riveted society that he was usually part of. Well, whatever the reasons are that he doesn't open those packages, he does... I mean, from here on this point, the movie is really about survival and, you know, he has to learn, like I said, a lot of things. He's really bothered at night by these mysterious sounds around him that are these loud thuds and he eventually realizes it's coconuts falling to the ground. So then he tries it and gets his way into a coconut. I have tried to split my way into brown, like the the de-husk, de de-hulled, whatever you call them, coconuts. I'm not even good at that. So trying to, trying to open a coconut straight off the tree would definitely be a challenge, especially if you really don't have much in the way of tools. He also goes fishing. That's a skill that improves over time, but he's really inept when he starts. And of course, there's a lot of epic scenes of him trying to build a fire. So he goes through all these, you know, basic survival situations, but he's not, he's not being filmed. He's not going to be called to a council. This is super real. Nobody's coming to save him. And when he does finally open all these packages, that is of course, when he finds a volleyball, a Wilson volleyball, who sort of be- becomes his only companion uh, on the island. Interestingly, it, I saw an early draft of the script for the movie online, 
And in that version, once he escapes from the island, sorry, I might be jumping ahead about there, but in that early draft, he, it was kind of like Gollum. There was kind of a good Chuck and a bad Chuck, the dialogue happening in his head. They hadn't developed the Wilson idea yet, but I think it was quite clever for him to personify this volleyball because then he was the companion and he was the stand-in for, for the audience for Chuck to be able to have some dialogue with. Right. There is a need for Wilson not only probably to support his mental health, but for the movie to move on with some form of dialogue because he needs somebody to talk to. The other person who's, or personification, I guess not really person, who's receiving attention from Chuck on the island is the watch, which symbolically is broken and doesn't tell time. The watch that his girlfriend gave him before he came onto the flight that brought him to the island. Interestingly, one small point about, about that pocket watch, it was a family heirloom that had belonged to Kelly's grandfather. And when she gave it to him, she told him that he had used it on the Southern Pacific, a, a railroad company that, that her grandfather had worked for. And now here is Chuck lost in the South Pacific. Just a small point, but one of those one of those small details that's kind of amusing, if, if nothing else. So he fixates on Kelly's picture, which is in the watch. He talks to it. He paints pictures of her on the wall in a cave that he's found on the island. She's a really essential part of him staying alive and keeping his hope alive. The thought of getting back to her, he was... He he had left her with an engagement ring when he got on the flight that night. But yeah, I guess we're going to skip ahead a bit because obviously he does get off the island. And once he gets back, he finds that the rules of time that he stated at the beginning in his speech in Moscow really are uh, still applying to everybody, including Kelly, who, you know, has gotten married and had a family. Because he's been gone for five years? I think it's about four years. Yeah. Yes. Time enough for her to you know, struggle with his memory and, and his loss, but for her then to pick up the pieces to get married and have a child. So she has picked up the pieces and moved on. And yet it was her, her love, her, you know, the memory and the image of her that I think was one that really what kept Chuck going on that island. I've got to credit the writer and the director for the ending because I was expecting a typical Hollywood ending where she's going to reunite with him no matter what because love conquers all blah 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 but I mean she's got a family she's she's married she has a child things have moved on and it's I, I I liked their reunion scene because, of course, they have things to talk through. I liked the reunion scene right up until the point where Kelly says to him, I've got something to show you. <laughs> because I was expecting, I don't know, I guess I was expecting some, some grand gesture that she was going to show him some, I don't know, painting, sculpture, I don't know what I was expecting, but she leads him out to the garage and gives him the keys 
to the vehicle that they had driven to the airport in together the night that he left. And that's that's it. That's the grand gesture. Yeah, I think that didn't quite work because it seemed that... I mean, it was understandable that she had that she had kept the car because first it was only four years later and you might keep a, a vehicle that long. For and sure. It, and I think that perhaps even though she had had to do so many things to let Chuck go, this was one piece that, that she was hanging on to. But yet in that scene, when she says, I want to show you that, it was kind of like she had planned to give that back to him, but maybe, but maybe it was actually more of a spur-of-the-moment decision, but it didn't really come across clearly that that, that was the case. So uh, a little bit unsatisfying. It was kind of unsatisfying, especially because he had... He tried to give her back the watch, too, which, I mean, understandably, it's a family heirloom, but she, you know, she wanted him to keep it. And then you think, oh, that that was that was a pretty beautiful, heartfelt kind of moment. Now, what is she going to do to top it? And and it's like it was like an Oprah moment. You know, she hands him the keys. It's like, you get a car. And here's your car. Yeah. But <laughs> but interestingly, though, there, there is a moment, though, right, when when he leaves, he's just driving out the driveway when you think for a moment that maybe she is going to leave her new life and go with Chuck. And that's understandable, for sure. I mean, absolutely, she's torn. And and like you said, you know, Helen Hunt does do a good job of that. There's There's not a lot of meat in her role, but you really feel the conflict that she's having. And I think that's really well illustrated in this clip. I always knew you were alive. I knew it. But everybody said I had to stop saying that, that I had to let you go. I love you. You're the love of my life. I love you too, Kelly. More than you ever knew. So now that Chuck has the vehicle, where does he go? We see him heading to Texas to deliver that one package that he never opened. Not to the recipient, but actually to the person who had sent it. And of course, this circles back to the opening scene of the movie because it's the same ranch, the same woman, and he leaves the parcel and a note saying, what what does the note say? It says, this package saved my life. Yeah. And yet, that's the one that we were wondering about. Why did he save that one package and not open it? I'm so sad that I don't have Kelly. But I'm so grateful that she was with me on that island. And I know what I have to do now. Gotta keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring. Is 
it's time for Island Itch, which is a little segment we do where we talk about things that got our attention, good or bad, while we were watching the show. So Dave, anything in particular that jumped out at you? Well, one thing I really noticed was the lack of score for, for most of the movie. When Chuck is on the island, there's no musical accompaniment at all. It's just a natural soundscape during all those island scenes. Wind, waves, the occasional thud of a dropping coconut. I think it really lends to the sense of verite and the starkness of Chuck being having been cast away, of being utterly alone on, on the island. And I thought that was really effective. And it's not until he gets off the island that you then start to hear pieces of the score. Yep, as an island watcher, this was probably my favorite aspect of the film because it did feature a lot of the ocean, <laughs> the shore, the waves. You could hear those sounds without having a score on top of it. So I really did appreciate that. And I thought it made the scenes where he's alone on the island much more effective than if it had been scored. The movie was nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound. It did not win, though. Interestingly, though, it did win a Grammy Award for the score. So to the extent that there was a score, which was by Alan Silvestri, it did win a Grammy Award. Another itch that got me was literally every time you see FedEx, if you, you know, did a sit-up, bumped a volleyball, cracked a coconut, whatever, you would be... uh, really really buff by the time this movie is over especially at the beginning it is an onslaught on your eyeballs of FedEx and I think that might be one of the reasons people think that this is based on a true story about a FedEx executive because you are a bombarded with FedEx imagery so I thought what's the deal is this product placement where they paid the story is that they weren't do you know more about that that's my understanding as well, that they, you know, they provided access to a lot of their facilities for filming. And the CEO, Fred Smith, appeared as himself in, in that scene where Chuck's welcome back. But as far as I know, there was actually no product placement uh, dollars uh, paid out. But what, what great publicity, though, for, for the company, even though it involves a disaster of, of a plane crash, it, uh, it's, I think it was very positive. Yeah, apparently apparently it gave them a bump in name recognition in Asia and Europe. So in that way, it worked like a charm, but I found it really distracting from the film. So even when he's on the island, like every package that washes up is a FedEx package. So you see that logo over and over and over and over and over again. They could have had a fictitious company name and it wouldn't have detracted from the story at all. Maybe the, the fact that it, that it is a real company really lends to that sense of verite of the movie and perhaps to that perception among some people that, that it was a true story. It probably does. So I've got a question for you. If you could change anything about this movie, I mean, it's 20 years old now, so what would you change and what would you keep? I know the main focus was on Chuck and his ordeal on the island and his 
his efforts to survive there and to escape the island. But I think it would have been interesting if there had been a parallel narrative happening where we would have seen some of Kelly's story about her loss and her coping with that. We see very little of that. As we've mentioned a few times, Helen Hunt's really underused in the movie. I think she did a great job as Kelly with what was there. And it would have been interesting to me to have a bit more of that, to show her journey through those years as well, if that had been happening in parallel. How's the sailing today? If you're enjoying our podcast, we'd love you to give us a hand by rating and reviewing Island Watch on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends about Island Watch. I honestly would have been satisfied, and this might be controversial, but I would have been satisfied if it had ended when he's on his little raft reaching up for the passing ship that saves him. I thought it's such a raw moment. He's given everything he he had. The whales that have been swimming around him for a few days, it seems, maybe keeping him sort of alive just by having another fellow creature nearby. And and that that moment where he reaches up to the ship is really, it's beautiful. It's touching. And I would have been happy if it had ended there. But I know that some people want to have to tie up the threads of the love story. So I like the fact that it did tie up those loose ends with his relationship with Kelly. I I think it helped kind of bring the story kind of full circle and and closed it up nicely e- even though to their credit they avoided the stereotypical Hollywood ending. He didn't, you know, get his girl back. He did have to start again, but I think it I think it presented the story quite well. Well, they They literally place him on a crossroads at the end, don't they? Exactly. He's on the the highway in Texas and he stops to ask, well, a woman actually stops to give him directions and tells him which way each road goes. And then he's, he's left there to decide which direction he will take his life. But besides making the film shorter, I think another thing that I would change about the film his opening the damn package. And I think they probably got that that feedback from other people because there was a, a Super Bowl commercial in 2003 that parodied the last scene in the film. So Chuck is returning the package to the sender and in the commercial version, the woman answers the door and... When, you know, he says, oh, by the way, what's in the box? And she says, oh, just a satellite phone, a GPS locator, fishing rod, water purifier, some seeds, just silly stuff. And I would, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I was thinking might be in there. But he, he never opens the package. He actually just returns it to the door of the sender. And so we never do know what's in there. But of course, it would have been a much shorter movie had he found that satellite phone just called up, you know, the whoever, the Coast Guard or whoever, and said, and given his GPS coordinates to say, please come rescue me. So it would have been a much different movie, but nonetheless, great. It would have been a much different movie. Great sense of humor for, for that ad. It is, it, it's a good alternate take on what might have been. Exactly.
time to play Find the Island. With so many islands in the world, it's a challenge, kind of a wonderful challenge, to figure out which islands to visit. To get to know the islands of the world better, we created this Find the Island segment. Maybe it will help choose which islands to visit, either in person or on a future episode of Island Watch. Here's how to play. One of us gives a series of clues about an island, and the other tries to figure out what island it is. Best of all, you can play along at home, either by staring into space with no idea, or shouting out the answer and calling us idiots for not getting to the answer sooner. Sound like fun? It's my turn to highlight an island. Are you ready, Dave? I'm ready. Let's start. Okay, this island is the birthplace of shoe designer Jimmy Choo. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I think he's based in the UK, but I, I don't know where he's originally from. All right. Well, I'll give you another clue then. And that is that this island is a food paradise. The cuisine incorporates Malay, Chinese, Indian, Peranakan, Thai, and European influences. Ooh, sounds, sounds really interesting. It's delicious. So people from all over the world visit for specialties like laksa lamak, which is a curried noodle soup with coconut milk, shrimp or fish, and then chili paste and coriander. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm getting hungry. Yep. Yeah, it sounds that sounds good. I don't think I've had that. I'll have to give that a try. Mm-hmm. Any guesses yet? Well, I'm guessing that it's in, in Asia, clearly. You're right there. <laughs> so, okay. It's uh, in Asia. All right. So what, can, what's your what's your next clue? I can narrow it down a little bit more and tell you that it's located within the 900-kilometer-long Strait of Malacca. Okay. Which is super fun to say, Strait of Malacca. <laughs> so the Strait of Malacca connects the Pacific and Indian Oceans, and it's only a mile and a half wide at its narrowest point. I mean, it's wider than that, but at its narrowest point, it's about, uh, well, that would be 1.7 miles on land. So it's especially mind-blowing to think that the vessels passing through it each year carry about a quarter of the goods traded in the world. Wow, that's a lot. It's busy. I'm going to guess, is it Singapore? You're narrowing it down really well. It's it's in Asia, and it's close to Singapore, but no cigar yet. Okay. Um, hmm. You got another clue? I do. I don't know if this one's going to help you that much, except that I'm kind of partial to visiting parks and this island is home to the smallest national park in the world it's just 25 square kilometers on the northwestern tip of the island and in the park it has mangrove swamps and it has rainforest with hiking trails and it has tranquil beaches uh yeah i want to go to there yeah it sounds neat i think point peely in canada is actually a bit smaller maybe it's on the Point Pelee Peninsula in Lake Erie. I'll have to check on that. Yeah, good point. Let's get our um, well-paid fact-checking crew on the job. All right. Are you ready for the next clue? Yeah. Okay. The capital is called Georgetown, and Georgetown is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it's, well, there's lots of interesting things about it that make it a World Heritage Site, but one of them is... 
a street called Pitt Street, where there are Muslim, Taoist, Hindu, and Christian places of worship lining the road all together. Wow. Okay, Georgetown. Okay, well, clearly it's not Georgetown, Guyana, because that's half a world away and on the South American mainland. But this place, it sounds like it's pretty diverse and in, and really interesting to see. But sorry, I, I haven't quite narrowed it down yet. Have you got, got any more clues? You don't have to help? apologize, because I think this is, you know, it's not... There's, I think I, there's something like 2,000 islands in the world, so this is a, this is a challenging quiz. Okay, the last clue I've got is, so Georgetown, like I mentioned, is the capital, and it's, well, there was a lot of colonization that happened here. The colonial era cityscape is so well preserved that a lot of filmmakers come to use it for, well, stunning sets for their movies. So you remember the movie called Crazy Rich Asians? Yeah I, yeah, I remember seeing the trailer for that one, and I thought it looked like it was really funny, but um, I, ha- I haven't seen it yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll have to cue that up. Thanks for the reminder. But so, so, di- so was, it, was it filmed there? It was, and actually um, one of the pivotal scenes is a showdown between Michelle Yeoh's character and Rachel Chu's character. They're, they're in a Mahjong parlor. That was filmed in... Uh, it's it's a place called the Blue Mansion, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Chiang Fatsu Mansion. It's it's gorgeous inside and out, and was an amazing set for that scene. Okay, well, well, when I watch the movie, I'll I'll keep an eye out for for that scenery. It sounds great. And another movie that was filmed there pretty recently, well, I mean, within the last couple of decades, was a 1999 movie of Anna and the King that was filmed in Georgetown. They really didn't have to do much to change the buildings and make it look like the 19th century. They basically just rolled up and started filming. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, it sounds like a great place, but you know, you, you've you've stumped me. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what island is it. So what I what island is it? It is. Are you ready? I guess you are, or you wouldn't have asked. <laughs> the island is Penang Island, and Penang Island is off. Well, it's part of Malaysia. And, well, you know, that's where Chuck's plane was headed in Castaway. So that's why I picked Penang Island for <laughs> our Find the Island this week. Very good. Very good. So, hey, listeners, if you got this one, I think you should give yourself a good pat on the back. And if you didn't get it, why not Google it and enjoy a virtual tour? Because it's gorgeous. For me, I feel like... Maybe my next uh, foray into the grocery store, I'm going to get some noodle ingredients and see if I can create that laksa lamak dish, because that sounds fantastic. Penang Island in Malaysia and the beauty of a deserted Pacific island. What a trip. We're heading back on board now and setting sail to the next port. Join us next week for another Island Watch adventure. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Island Watch Cast. Send us an email at islandwatchpodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to visit our website for show notes and more at islandwatchpodcast.com. Fair winds, calm seas.
This has been a production of Phosphine League. Phosphine League. Phosphine League. Phosphine League.